Please pray with me for illumination of the scriptures. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, let us proclaim your decrees in this dark world. We ask that the word would light our path, lead us to your will, and show us your eternal wisdom. Amen. The scripture reading is from Psalm 2, which can be found in your Bibles, page 543. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, we are going to be talking about Psalm 2. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this summer spending it in the Psalms and basing our entire worship services over some of these texts. Uh, It's been a lot of fun for us. And um, it's great sort of building a whole hour worship time over one psalm and one theme. And and this um, this morning, we have a theme of what we're calling a theme of Zion. And we're going to get to that. But as we look to our text, um, I I love Psalm 2, and I love how it starts. The psalmist asks a question, right? And the question is, why do the nations conspire against her God? Why? You ever wonder that? I mean, sometimes I wonder that. As a Christian, sometimes I wonder, why are people so mad at the Christians? Sure, we've done some bad things, but so, so is everyone. You know, I look at, if you look at the little footnote in your Bible, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament says the word rage, which I think is even more fun. Why do the nations rage? Why do they get so angry? Why do they get in an uproar and so worked up? It's a great word. I love the word rage because it's not just anger, right? It's, it's, it's anger that leads us to like a frenzy. You know, it's, it's, it's anger that leads us to do something completely, what I think is often irrational, something that makes no sense. Anger is one thing, but rage, rage is like this idea of afterwards we look and we think, what just happened? You know, for, for comic book fans, think of the Incredible Hulk, right? This is what we're talking about. It's like, it's out of control. And the psalmist is asking, why, why do the nations do this against God? 
Like, why are people so conspiring against God and his people? It says in verse 2 that these, these nations, these kings, they rise up and they plot against the Lord and his anointed. Why do people actively oppose God? You know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, that's fine. You have your God. We, you know, worship whatever. Just do whatever you want. But no, there are people, and we know this to be true, who are actively opposing God and Christians. And this is nothing new. All we have to do is read through Scripture and come across the story of the Tower of Babel, where it says all the people of the earth conspired together to build a tower to heaven. The enemies of God, they've always plotted against God. Why do they do this? Since the beginning of time, this has always been what we as humanity have done. And then in verse 3, the psalmist says that, that they think they're breaking the chains. They think they're freeing people. And isn't this true? That people who are in opposition to God, people who are in opposition think that we Christians are in some sort of bondage, that we're in some sort of slavery, that we have, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you have ever felt this way, but I've often felt like people think I'm limiting myself. That why would you live under all of these rules? Why would you live under these ancient laws that don't make any sense? This is what the world thinks. The world thinks we are limiting ourselves. The world thinks we are placing burdens on ourselves for no reason. And the world thinks that if we can conspire against God, is what the psalmist is writing, if we can come together and go against God and his people, we can free them. We can free these religious people. Those who oppose God often think this way. But we as Christians, what do we think? We think the opposite, don't we? We see in scripture that to those who are proud, to those who oppose God, that the yoke of Christ seems burdensome. It seems like, how could you ever live up to the law? How could you ever live under all of these rules? How can you be a Christian in the 21st century? This is crazy. But to the humble, we know that the yoke of Christ brings freedom. To those who go to Jesus in humility, find freedom from sins, freedom from shame. And we would say that, in fact, that this idea is wisdom, going to God for all of these things. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom. Not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of the age, of this age, which is coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. See, Paul says that for us Christians, we have to understand, and the psalmist is writing about this too, we have to understand that what we count as wisdom, the world just doesn't understand. And so the psalmist asked, why? Why are they conspiring so actively against our God? Why do they spend so much energy against our God? And then we see God's response. So then, God laughs. God scoffs at them. You know, the story of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis is a great story too, where God has a similar response. When the people go to build a tower, 
You know, the Hebrew, what it says is that God goes down to see what they were doing. They thought that they could build a tower and be like God and that God actually says that he has to go down just to even see what they're doing. It's really funny. But here, it's not too dissimilar. These people who are branding together to oppose God and what God would do. And God says, you guys don't get it. He laughs at them. They think they are free. Those who oppose God would say they have found freedom. And yet God says, you don't get it. The world often thinks they have control, but do they? The kings of this world think they have it all figured out, but do they? How many kingdoms have lasted forever? (laughs) How many kings and rulers are still on the throne? They come and they go. And God sits there and laughs, thinking, you think you know, but you have believed a lie. And so in verse 5, the psalmist says that our God rebukes them and corrects them. He tells them the truth in verse 6, which is what? No, no, no. You are not in control. I have seated my king in Zion, and he will be king forever. The real king, the king of the line of David that we talk about in the Old Testament, who I was talking about this morning. This king will be seated in Zion forever. And I want to mention this word Zion because it's a word we use a lot in the Old Testament. I just want to clarify it if you've never studied it. Um, The word Zion is a word that gets used and thrown around a lot. Um, Sometimes it's in reggae songs and things, um, which is fine. Uh, But what it means in scripture is this, is usually it's a reference to Jerusalem. We talked about this earlier in the summer with Psalm 137. How can I sing Psalms of Zion in a foreign land? Right? They're talking about Jerusalem, but this idea of Zion is not just Jerusalem. It's a bit more. See, originally, Zion was a hill just outside the old city where David conquered a Jebusite temple and built his palace there. And so Zion is also known as the city of David, which we know is where the Messianic prophecies come from, where Jesus, the line of Jesus comes from, and that the Israelites would look at Zion not just as a physical place, but as a promise A promise that God will have a king on the throne for eternity. And this is the imagery they use. That the kingdom will be restored as it was with David. And so Zion is not just a city. Yes, it is. But it's also an everlasting capital of God's kingdom. This is the the center of God's kingdom here on earth and will be forever. And so when we read this word Zion, especially in the Old Testament, it's not just a physical place where sometimes the Jews would remember Israel, but it's also the promise of what's to come, right? And so we need to know that, that he's not just saying that Jesus has been seated on the throne in Jerusalem, but that Jesus will be seated in this place and he will be the king for eternity. He will be the eternal king that will reign forever from the line of David. And it's a promise not only of this eternal city, but it's a promise of God's triumph over evil. Because when people opposed God, what did they do? They tried to take over Jerusalem. And it worked many times. But God says, no, there will come a time when I will conquer all of that evil. And so, while the kings of the earth may rule for a time, they may be in control for a season. In the end, 
the Lord will have his King Jesus from the line of David on his throne forever. Which is why God is not worried about these kings plotting against them. This is why God laughs when he sees these kings plotting against them. This is a psalm about the line of kings. And ultimately, we know now that it's pointing to Jesus. And we know Jesus' love. We know Jesus cares for us. But yet, the psalmist says that the people will be terrified of this Jesus. This is not the Jesus we know, right? We talk about Jesus being full of love and grace and compassion and all of these things, and that's true. But look at verse 7. If we look at verse 7, we see why they'll be so terrified. Or verse 8, excuse me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. (laughs) There's going to come a time, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, and if you've heard me say it before, maybe the Lord wants you to hear it twice. I believe this to be very, very true, and it's one of the first things I learned from a very important mentor of mine. He said, Sam, everyone either bows before Jesus or Jesus will make them bow before him. <laughs> right? it's, it's your choice when you want to, but if you decide to live your life, if we decide to live our life opposing Jesus the entire way, at some point, we know this to be true from Scripture, that something like this will happen. That when Jesus returns, whether it be as the eternal king or whether something just happens in your own life, there's going to be a time when you are forced to reconcile who you are serving, which king you are serving. And here the psalmist says that for these nations that oppose Jesus, for these nations that oppose God, for these nations that oppose God's anointed, that God will break them to pieces like a rod of iron breaking pottery. Now, I want to ask a question. I want to share a little story. Have you ever thought you were really good at something, but then it turned out you weren't? Um, often this happens with many of us in sports. We grow up thinking we're something, we're something, and then we get to a certain level and we realize, oh, wow, I'm not very good at all. Um, I want to share a short story. This is the first time I realized this, and it was the first thing I thought of when I was reading this, when I really felt broken like iron, uh, or pottery before iron. Some of you know, um, years ago in, in my youth, I grew up in California and was a swimmer and a water polo player. And water polo is a great sport. It's very violent. It's great for an angry young man to get all of his aggression out. And um, I thought I was a big star. Actually, at 17, I was invited to play on this like regional all-star team, right? And so me and a bunch of these guys from our city of about 300,000 people, it's a big city, all came together and traveled like an all-star team to play some of these other all-star teams in the region. And I thought I was really big stuff. Uh, I thought I was really good. And... Um, we were going to be playing this team that had this one player that was supposed to just be the best. And everyone kept talking about this guy. I had never seen this guy, I had never met this guy, but I thought, oh, this will be a great test for me. Um, (laughs) This will be a lot of fun, I remember thinking. And then um, I saw him. And I don't know if you've ever remember seeing someone who physically scared you to your core, (laughs) but I remember this feeling. So first of all, I see this person. And he looks big. And as I'm walking up to him, before we have to compete and everything, I see that he's actually much larger than me, taller than me, over two meters tall. And it's always weird for me when I have to look up at someone, right? This always makes me a little bit scared. Um, And then, but it's all happening at once in my brain, right? So it's all kind of 
happening at the same time. And then I notice just how wide he is. So not only is this human being massive, but he's like twice as wide as I am. And I'm thinking, how is this possible? You know, and then all at the same time, again, this is all happening, I notice he doesn't just have little like teenage whiskers. You know, he has a full beard at 17 years old. And I just remember thinking, I have to compete against a gorilla. <laughs> this is not going to be fair. And maybe then I thought, well, maybe he's just, you know, people, people are talking about him, you know, and they're giving him too much credit. Maybe I can be faster than him in the water, or maybe I can trick him, or maybe, no, he destroyed me. Um, and I, there's no other way to say it. I remember rarely in my athletic career wanting to quit. And this was a day that I wanted to quit. Um, many of us have had experiences like this. I remember, I, I wish I could remember his name. I, can't, I can still picture him, though. It's like this giant gorilla. Um, and I just remember thinking, I have no business being here. Why did I ever think I could stand up to this guy? Now, I would say that it was something like pottery trying to compete against a rod of iron. I had no chance. And I know this is a fun story and we can all think back to maybe a sports, sporting event or maybe a competition we entered that we thought we would win and then didn't even come close. Maybe a job we applied for and they tell us, you know, we weren't even close, whatever it was. We've all had moments where we've been humbled on this earth. But this was the first thing I thought of because I remember feeling so physically helpless and I thought I was so important. And the psalmist is saying that when we oppose God, when these kings, when, when people band together to be angry at the Lord's anointed and that the Lord, that they will be like pottery before a rod of iron. You know, church, think about it. What lasts in this world? What will truly last in this world? You know, you think about all the things we strive after sometimes. This is why Jesus said that, you know, moth and rust will destroy you know, that all the nicest things we can have will rust and go away. All the money we can earn will one day be spent and gone. But our allegiance to Christ and his eternal kingdom is for eternity. And in the world today, this is getting more and more difficult. Because the kings of this world, the leaders of this world, the ideals of this world are becoming more and more persuasive, aren't they? And we think, ooh, yeah, maybe they're right. Ooh, maybe, maybe God is a little too strict. Maybe Christianity is just a little bit too narrow-minded. The world is becoming very persuasive. The enemies of Christ are becoming very, very persuasive. Some of you may have seen this in the news. Recently, two very well-known Christian leaders have actually publicly renounced their faith. Uh, a guy named Marty Sampson, who's one of the lead uh, musicians for Hillsong, has said he no longer considers himself a Christian. Um, a guy named Joshua Harris, who's an author and pastor, uh, has also recently left his faith publicly. And Marty Sampson, the, the Hillsong musician who's written many songs many of us would know, he said that he wanted something with more truth than Christianity that Christianity was far too narrow for him. And that he feels like pursuing this truth and that the real wisdom has actually led him away from the God of the Bible. 
And there's, there's a website called Pathios, some of you may be familiar with, and there's a blogger that writes on there, and is, he's, he's known as the Friendly Atheist. Um, it's actually really good to read his stuff. But, and he said about these two major celebrity Christians leaving the faith, and this was just this week, so it wasn't, uh, I mean, this is fresh. He said, he used the language basically saying that this guy, Marty Sampson, finally woke up that he finally saw the truth of religion keeping people in bondage. This is exactly what the psalmist wrote about 2,000 plus years ago. That the world thinks we are in bondage. Who is right? I mean, think about it. We actually kind of use the same language, don't we? The world would say that we are in bondage to religion and rules, and then we tell people that, no, actually, the Bible teaches you're in bondage to sin. You're in bondage to the things of this world. Who's right? The enemies of God say at the same time, just like this psalm, that we are all voluntarily coming to a prison on Sunday morning. Why are you not at brunch? Why are you here? And honestly, this is a tough question. I've been wrestling with this all week. Because both people claim freedom. Both groups, those who oppose God and those who love God, claim to have all the answers. Um, I remember, some of you know this, that uh, people make a lot of claims. And I happen to, and I don't mean to make light of the subject, but again, this was just the first thing I thought of. I happen to love cheeseburgers. I absolutely love cheeseburgers. And when I first moved to Zurich, it really made me mad because all over town, people have signs outside that say, best cheeseburger in Zurich. And it made me very angry because it can't be possible that all of these places have the best cheeseburger. And so you know what I did? I went and tasted all those cheeseburgers, all right? And I have an opinion on what the best cheeseburger in Zurich is. Actually, I have a whole scale with metrics on price versus value and everything, but we can talk about that later. This is what I would say to everyone who thinks that the world thinks they offer freedom and that Christ and Christians say we offer freedom. What I would say to them is what the Bible says is taste and see. Look at the world today. Where is their joy? Where is their happiness? Where is their service to, to, to those who are un- unfortunate? Where is their love and caring and living for one another? Who is angry and judgmental and only living for themselves? And I know there's people out there that aren't Christians that are doing good things. But if you look at broadly across the world, this world is becoming really angry. And this world is not living for one another. They live for you if you ascribe to their values and they'll say, yes, you can join us if you're just like us. But if you oppose them, what would this world do? This world will oppose you. And sadly, especially in Europe, it's getting violent, isn't it? Church, this is the same thing I would tell my child when he grows up. This is the same thing I tell young people. You need to taste and see if the Lord is good. Because there is a room full of 250, 300 people. And most of us would probably say that, yes, I have tasted and I have seen. I don't know why they conspire against the Lord and his anointed. I don't know why people are so angry at Christians. I know we've done stupid things, but so has the world. You know, by now many of you know that I only quote a few authors. And one of them 
you know, Eugene Peterson, A.W. Tozer, Wendell Berry, Dallas Willard, one of them being Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen has a quote that we actually have on the wall in our house that I want to share with you. Nothing happens automatically in the spiritual life. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. And this is what the psalmist is praising about Zion. Because even when the world rallies against us, even when the world says that we are enslaved and in bondage, we have the ability through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit to bring joy and love and light to this world in a way that actually shows people where the freedom comes from. They can say freedom all they want. They can claim one thing all they want. This restaurant can claim the best burger in Zurich. That's fine. But until the world sees the joy of Christ in the church, they're just words. And if we believe that there is a Jesus on the throne in Zion forever and that he has saved a place for us, then we have nothing to fear. Just like it says here, not even death can take that away from us. And then we can go out into the world and show the world joy and true freedom. It breaks my heart to see these two Christian leaders publicly renounce their faith. I wish they had gone to friends and and the church before it came to this. And maybe they will, and, and, and I pray for them and, and people like them all the time. But I look at the world today, and I just don't see joy. I look at what the world is placing all the importance on today, and I don't see freedom. I look at the burdens of the young people and the youth I work with, and I don't see freedom. I see fear and burdens. The only thing that will bring us true freedom is the joy of the Lord. In Zion, when we look at a psalm of Zion, it's a promise of an eternity with a just, loving ruler on the throne. And in the meantime, others will have power and influence. The kings of this world will rule for a time or a season. But his kingdom built on love and joy will last. It will be like iron in a world full of pottery. And many people say they bring freedom. But if you say it, there ought to be proof. In church, I just want to challenge us this morning. Where do we see the evidence of freedom? Is it in Christ or in the teachings of this world? Where do we see freedom? you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for who you are and what you teach. We ask, Lord, that... uh, God, we ask that we would wrestle with these difficult questions. And God, that we would taste and see that you are good. Lord, that we would rest in you, the true king who sits enthroned forever. And Lord, when this world tempts us, when this world seeks to lead us astray, Father, I pray that we would find truth and wisdom in your scripture, in your church, and among sisters and brothers in Christ. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. And we make our prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.